0: And if you're not into the tonight's game, last week was the Grammys, a couple of months from now, or a couple of weeks from now is the Oscar, like this is just a month of greatness. It's a month where we're going, everything good in 2022 is being celebrated and this kind of stuff, if you won the Grammy for 23, you won the Oscar for 23, you won the, the NFL championship for 23, and then here's Jesus going, let's talk about what true greatness actually is. Um, so we're just going to dive right in with that uh, little preamble, so... Um, these verses seem to echo things we've heard in the past few weeks. Uh, if you've been with us walking through Mark, if you've been reading Mark on your own, Mark 7, 8, into 9, it seems really repetitive on some of the things. Jesus, again, says he's going to die. Jesus, again, talks about his, his uh, future with his disciples, this kind of stuff, and, and it seems like it's happening over and over and over again. Um, and as I was processing that and just praying through it and going, okay, like this is, this is the the account of Jesus's life. What is the what's the repetition here for? What's the, what's the the same thing that we see and have seen and talked about? And frankly, like, how do I even talk about this differently than Matt or Nicole did a couple weeks ago without sounding like, oh, let's add to it? But I'm not trying to contradict and contrast what, what what Matt and Nicole meant to say was this. Like that's that's not it. On one hand, like Mark is, is recalling one story of Jesus's life and death and resurrection. And so there's one theme that he's really trying to, to drill into us throughout this book. Um, but on the other hand, I had this thought, and I don't know if this applies to you, but it made me wonder, in all of what we see of Jesus saying the same thing to his disciples over and over and over again, does he need to do the same thing with me? Does he need to do the same thing with you? Like, are there things in my life, are there things in your life where Jesus would look at you and be like, yeah, we've talked about this a million times. Um, Any of us who are parents might understand that mentality with our kids, like, oh, this thing that we talked about yesterday seems like you've never heard this before, so we're gonna talk about it again. And it just makes me wonder, like, does, does God need to do that with us? Does Jesus have a message for us that we just, refuse to pay attention to. Don't get his, his message. Um, so what is that message that disciples need to hear? What is it that, that's so hard for them to get? I think it's the same message that we need to hear, that, that's hard for us to get. And, and the message is good news for those of us who are skeptical and good news for those of us who are seeking um, I think the good news is freedom for, for the, those of us who are tied to, to legalism and rules and this kind of stuff, and also is good news and freedom for those of us who just kind of are, are tempted to go like, I can kind of do whatever I want, or those around us who are living that way. I think the, the good news is a reminder, whether we're a longtime follower of Jesus or whether we're someone who's brand new or just even considering, what, what is that message that we see over and over and over and over and over again, it's this, three words that are simple but profound. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. That's the good news for the skeptic and the seeker and the legalist and the licentious and the longtime follower of Jesus and the new follower of Jesus and those who are looking for something to put their trust in. Jesus is Lord. But why is that message so hard for us to get? Why is that message so hard for the disciples to get? I don't think that it's hard for us to get because we have a lack of lordship. Like there's, there's been seasons and, and trends in different societies and that kind of stuff where people just don't like authority. And certainly people don't like authority today. And yet, I think the issue today that we face is there's too many things claiming to be our Lord. And, and, and our temptation is to give ourselves to all of these other things such that at best, Jesus just becomes one Lord among many, one authority among many, one power over us among many. And the idea that Jesus is Lord kind of loses its impact. Anybody resonate with that? Certainly, even even interestingly, in all of our like anti-authority, I want to do what I want to do, in, in doing so, think of Instagram influencers, this kind of stuff, do whatever you want, and yet... The authority they place themselves under, you place yourself under, if that's you, is all the different likes, all the different perception, all the different follows. And there's all of these things that we give over, give ourselves over to. We put people over us and give them power. We give possessions power over us. We give position or prestige or other people's perceptions power over us. And and you know what's true of all of those things? All of those lords look very similar. They demand stuff from us. They demand you always do better, always do more. Earn, earn the favor of that person. Earn the favor of that possession. Earn the favor of that prestige or this kind of stuff. Because if you stop or, or get tired or give up for a day, you immediately fade into oblivion demand more, do better, earn my favor. Th- th- those lords, power, people, prestige, per- perception, position, all these things take things from you to build themselves up. And even as they do so, they, they, promise, they promise to benefit you. But, but in truth, at best, we get gifts that are fleeting, just a momentary pleasure, that, then what happens? It just fades. And so we're left craving more. Is that a pattern in our world today? Is that a pattern in, in your life today? Because if it is, if that's the pattern, if that's kind of the, the norm that we think of when we, when we give ourselves over to different lords, to different authorities, to different powers, then it's going to be really hard for Jesus to be good news. Because, because if the concept of lordship or the concept of authority, the concept of power, anywhere else we look is is really demanding, really hard to please, or leaves us with these empty promises, then it's it's almost the you know, fool me once, shame on me; fool me twice, sh- nope, dang it, I got it wrong. Fool me once, shame on you; fool me twice, shame on me. It's that George Bush clip that used to play on late night TV it gets me every time I mess it up. Fool don't get fooled again. Um, it's the hot stove. If you touch a hot stove and it burns you, then then you don't want to go back to it. That one I can follow. That's more simple. <laughs> Fool me once stove gets hot. Because <laughs> what's going on, back to reality, but what's going on is like at the time, like before Jesus even rode into Jerusalem, which we'll see here in a few weeks, there were other folks who rode into Jerusalem claiming to be Messiah. Did you know that? Mm -hmm. There are other folks who claimed to be the Messiah. There are other things and other people saying, follow me. That's been true throughout all of history. And like religious and political leaders today or influencers of whatever type you see today, some of those folks even gained followers only to let those followers down. And so from a human point of view, the people that Jesus encountered had this perception of power and previously failed hope and experience that led to them being understandably skeptical. What does good lordship look like? What is good authority? What's different about this person? But at the same time, we see throughout the gospels this universal yearning. For Jesus' disciples, who Jesus talks to most in today's verses, their faith was in him. They wanted more. Like us, they were seeking and asking the question, what does good lordship look like? And so here's why this matters. Here's why that, that setting matters. Here's why the repetition in Mark matters. Here's why this little preamble matters. And it's going to be up on the screen. But to say that Jesus is Lord is not just to declare with our mouths, this is the one I say yes to. Of all the choices out there, this is the one, or one among many I say yes to. Rather, to say Jesus is Lord necessitates that we give our whole selves over to a very redefinition of power and authority and kingship. It's not enough just to say, yeah, that's the one I choose. It's it's a life of saying, I give myself to this, and this looks utterly different than anything else on earth. Because Jesus' message, which is really hard to get, which he needs to tell us over and over and over again, is a very redefinition of the concept of greatness. And that's what we see in this part of Mark 9. There's this contrast between the world's definition of greatness and then God's definition of greatness. What does greatness look like in the kingdom of God? You know what greatness looks like in the kingdom of God? Here's a summary of these verses. It'll be up on the screen. God's definition of greatness, Jesus' definition of greatness is death, service to others, and either collaboration and working with others, meaning you don't get all the glory, or more than that, celebrating their win, even if it means you lose. Again, it's a fun night to be talking about this before two teams go play each other. Celebrating Their win, even if it means you lose, is part of Jesus' definition of greatness. Does that sound like greatness? No. That's why Jesus is Lord is such a hard message to get. It's why he has to repeat it over and over and over. It's also why it's the best good news, though. Let's see what that means. All right, verse 30 again, if you want to follow along. I'm just going to read a couple of these verses today. The disciples and Jesus went on from where they had been and passed through Galilee And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. There's this old song, this country song, that says, everybody wants to go to heaven, but you know it? Nobody wants to die. Terrible theology, and yet a very true sentiment for a lot of us. Like if you ask most people what they want, here's what they want. They want a straight... Up into the right line, like the one that's about to be on a screen. That's what we want our lives to look like, right? One step up into the right today, one step up into the right tomorrow, never goes backwards, never goes down. We just want to move up and, and Jesus is a way to get there. Like life is better. All the blessings, all the promises. We just want to like pull up to the dock of heaven and take one step off because we've reached we've reached it. Like, that's it. There's entire religions built around attaining that. In fact, some of the folks who are most disillusioned with the concept of Christianity at the moment ha- have been taught some version of this. That because of Jesus, you get your best life now. That because of Jesus, there is no suffering. It's just just up and to the right from here. That's, that's, not, that's not the message of Jesus, for the record. It's the wrong picture. Instead, the best, the best like, representation of the Christian life that I've ever seen is from a guy named Paul Miller. Paul Miller wrote a book called The Praying Life. You may have read it. Uh, he also wrote a book called The J-Curve. And, and this is what Jesus shows us, the trajectory of life, more realistically is. How do you get to resurrection? Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Terrible theology. Rather, what does Jesus say is the path? To resurrection and new life, it, 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 it's through death. It's through death. The only way to resurrection is only through death. First, that's that's the symbolism laced throughout the biblical sacrifices. That's the, that's the symbolism laced throughout Exodus and the lamb and the the sacrifice there, and it's the it's it's the symbolism of baptism which I think we're going to do on uh, the Sunday after Easter, if anybody's interested, hasn't been baptized. Death as we go into the water with Christ, raised to new life with Christ. A couple weeks ago, we saw in Mark 8 that as Jesus explained discipleship, he said it's laying down your life. It's picking up your cross and following me. Even Philippians 2, in this great hymn that the church used to sing, celebrating Jesus, I'm going to summarize it, but Paul says Jesus was humble even to the point of death. And then, and only then, did God raise him and then exalt him. And forever, Jesus is exalted, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess. But Jesus didn't even get to go up into the right. Even pray the night before he died, God, could you take this away from me? What Jesus modeled, what God's consistent promise has always been, is it takes death before life. That sounds utterly countercultural. Doesn't sound like greatness. You know that suffering appears in every single book of the New Testament either commands that you're going to suffer or, or promises to endure through suffering or examples of suffering. There's, there's, there's suffering in every book of the New Testament. The earliest followers of Jesus were literally persecuted and died for their faith, but they believed that they had better life waiting them. The first century churches looked a lot more like underground house churches that we hear about in China today, way more than they did like the stunning cathedrals that some of us can go visit in Europe. And it may be an interesting side note to process through why only one of those places see the church thriving right now. A lot of those cathedrals are malls and apartment buildings. But, but here's the point. If, if worldly power says up and to the right, best life now, power comes from wealth and leads to wealth, and power gives you long life, and authority gives you happiness and justice and winning... Jesus says and models that power in the kingdom of God looks a lot like death. True power looks like a J-curve. Before there's exaltation, there's betrayal. Before there's glory, there's suffering. Before true and eternal life comes temporary but very real death. And if that's true for Jesus, then, then as all these symbols and verses through the Bibles remind us, it, it's also true for his followers, Because whether persecution or age or an accident, one day you and I will die. And only through death do those of us who are in Christ enter into true and full life with him. Again, this seems backwards. Like the worldly perspective of death is what? Avoid it at all costs. Don't talk about it. It's bad. It's morbid. But Jesus would say, hey, hey, yeah, trust my time with it, but follow me into death, because through death you find true life. And as hard as literal death might seem, it's perhaps harder in a world that says, I'm number one, my opinion matters most. It's harder in that kind of world to die to ourself in big and small ways every day while we live. Is that fair? Because in truth, and this is what you see in the, the right picture here, this is, this is the opportunity, this is the invitation from God every day, is there's a lot of little J's on our way to the one big J. If you're not following me, here's what I mean by that. There's a lot of opportunities to die to ourselves and find true life, to die to ourselves and find Jesus, to to die to our flesh and find the Spirit in a lot of little opportunities, little conversations, little scenarios, little relationships every single day. Every relationship is an opportunity for pride or humility. Many decisions are a choice between am I going to inconvenience myself or am I going to inconvenience you? Most of my life begs the question, am I living for me or for God? Little j, little j, little death to resurrection, little laying down of life and picking up a cross. You follow me? To quote another lyric, George Washington says to Alexander Hamilton, didn't really say this for the record, I think. Maybe he was a poet. But he says to Hamilton, he says in the show, do you have a head full of fantasies of living like a martyr? To which Hamilton eagerly replies, yes. You remember what Washington says if you have the show memorized like my whole household does? Dying is easy, young man. Living is harder. Living is harder. Do you resonate with that? Like, at least, much modern Christian thought would say, if we die, we get to go to heaven. Like, the big J curve for the win on that. But every single day, you and I have the opportunity to live as if we believe Christ is Lord, not just in our afterlife, but in this life as well. Which is to say, every single day, you and I have the opportunity to lay down our life for God and others. Every single day, you and I have the opportunity to to display some otherworldly definition of power and greatness. And every single day, we have the opportunity to choose not to do that. And this is the tension that the disciples put on display in the rest of the chapter. Like, I, I just love, there's a great book called The Humor of Christ. It's out of print, but it's amazing. And I just Picture this as I, as I see Jesus' Jesus's interactions with his disciples in the rest of this chapter. Jesus goes, what were you discussing? And the disciples are like, "Well, We were discussing which of us was the greatest. <laughs> which, Like, how does that even look? Like, well, I cast out 32 demons today. I healed four blind men and two lame people. Yeah, but I get extra points for the leper. And Jesus is like, okay, come on. Crisscross applesauce, guys, and sit down. He called the twelve and he said to them, If anyone would be the first, he must be the last and the servant of all. And he takes this child. Which then again, if you have child or have interacted with them, you know they have big dreams. But you also know they're utterly dependent. Utterly reliant on some caretaker, at least in their younger years. This is the the age of the, the person. And so so Jesus is going, yeah, you're talking about greatness? Looks like this, not that. Then John, and I love that this is John, because like John's usually the one who like is love and like is reclining on Jesus and, and like Peter's the guy who gets the bad rap. But John messes up too. Write that down. <laughs> John goes, Jesus, we saw someone doing what we're supposed to be doing. We saw someone who, who's claiming to know you, but we don't know him, so we're trying to stop him from casting out demons. And Jesus, what's his response? Essentially, he goes, well, is he, is he for us, and is he helping people? And the disciples are like, oh, yeah, it seems like, they, it seems like he is. And Jesus is like, well, okay, verse 40. The one who is not against us is for us. Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Like, it's so easy to cringe at the disciples, right? And yet, if we were there or if someone was chronicling our lives, wouldn't we be in exactly the same boat? And generations from now, wouldn't people go like, can you believe what Ben did? Look Look at this. He's trying to follow Jesus, and Jesus would have said to him over and over and over again, Ben, why don't you get this? Not in a shaming way, but in a, a yearning for more, an invitation. Before Jesus called the disciples to himself, and even as they follow him, they're just sinful, broken humans like you and me. There were folks who were shaped by the same views or similar views as power and kingship and authority, as we are. they had been burned by leaders before. Some, even in the, the band of Jesus' closest folks, were skeptical, even as they sought him, just like we have been and maybe always will be. They're a lot like us. So just for a couple minutes, in, in today's context, let's chat about this. What does greatness look like by today's worldly definition? What's greatness look like? Wealth. Wealth. To be wealthy is to be great. Billionaire. Billionaire. Sure. Fame. What? Fame? Yeah. To be to be great is to be famous, and to be famous is to be great. What else? The thing that popped in my head is the blue check mark, like the verified checkmark. The verified check mark. Okay. Verified greatness. <laughs> For eight ninety-nine a month. <laughs> I don't know if that's price. Follows. Say it again. Likes and, Likes and follows. Yeah. Hustle. Hustle. Yeah. Do more. You're great. The more you do. Wake like up at five a.m. and then take your home, your work home with you. Yeah. The day, it's like a- yeah. You are what you accomplish. Yeah. Being, uh, self-made. being self-made. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Again, opposite of the whole like, hey, look at this child who's utterly dependent. Your own Wikipedia page. Yeah. Can't you make one, though? Yeah. If you try that tonight, remember, like, whole conversation. (laughs) What are are some, and we, we can keep going down this path, different question, though, what are some reasons that we don't like people doing the same work we do, even if it's good? Competition. Which is to say what? You want the praise, you don't want them Yeah. Yeah, I don't want them to get the if they get the praise, then who can't get the praise? It's a scarcity mindset. Scarcity mindset, yeah. Yeah. Anything else? Any other reasons that we pride? Pride. They might do it better. They might do it better. Fear. Threat. Yeah. Threat. yeah. And all of this relates to greatness. I, if, if they win, I can't win. If they're the greatest, I can't be the greatest. If they can do it better than I am, I can't be the greatest. So, so The disciples are at least wrestling with the same things that just crossed our minds, and, and whether you said it out loud or not. Greatness in the kingdom of God, though, looks quiet and humble. It's giving up your voice for the voiceless. Greatness in the kingdom of God takes the posture of a servant and says, I am going to inconvenience myself for God or others rather than asking them to be inconvenienced for me. That's the posture of a servant. Greatness in the kingdom of God says, Hey, I have at best one piece of the pie. I know this much. I can do this much. It it at least invites collaboration with others. And again, a harder way to read this, harder for our own like bents and the world around us, is to say, since I only have one piece of the pie, it means letting others win even if I lose. It means rejoicing even if they get the glory instead of us. It's uncomfortable. Greatness in the kingdom of God is not up and to the right. And best life now and, and better than everyone else, and top seller, or top earner, or whatever, at any cost, at loss of my integrity, or whatever, whatever definition the world throws at us or we've been formed into of power or people or position or, or perception from others, it's, it's not those things. It's not the things that those sources tell us are greatness. Greatness. As defined by God, is dying to yourself, living for God and people, picking up your cross, and following Jesus. Only then do we find big and small, one-time and daily resurrection, when we consistently die to ourselves. You get this? This hard. Do you get why Jesus needed to repeat these things over and over and over to his disciples and maybe to us as well? (laughs) So Mark 9 ends with this very common but misunderstood exhortation. If your hand, foot cause you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. In light of everything we've said tonight, this is at the heart of God's message in a couple different ways. On one hand, our eyes see the greatness around us, and we want it. Fair? Like our eyes see and want. We want the worldly desires. We want the power. We want the likes. We see others getting it, and we want that. And then our hands and our feet are proverbially the way that we get those. So if eyes see it and want it, then the hands grasp and go after it. Fair? Can I summarize it that way? The eyes see and want it, the hands grasp and go after it. So so yes, there is a caution here that Jesus is giving against worldly temptations, against being defined by the greatness that, that, that the world throws at us. That's how these are often talked about, these exhortations. Here's the other side that's almost never talked about is it actually your hand or your foot or your eye that cause you to sin? Let me ask it another way. Is it the external world or Satan or anything outside of you that causes you to sin? This is a leading question because it's going to make us real uncomfortable for a sec. No, where does sin and brokenness and desire start? In your identity, in your your mind, In in your heart, in your soul, in your strength. All that stuff lives in each of us. You remember a few weeks ago, Jesus said, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. He talked about like, hey, you Pharisees, you do a great job washing all the dishes around you because you think that what comes into you from outside defiles you? No. It's what comes out of you that defiles you. This is why Jesus equates cutting off body parts to losing taste. If you're salt, losing taste in in verse 50. If you try to fix the problem by removing external things, you're just going to get external results. Stuff will still look like salt. You'll still look good. You still might even do right by the powers and people and perception that you pursue. But we're still clinging to this worldly definition of greatness. We're not truly giving ourselves over to Christ as Lord. I want to submit that most of us, please don't try this, could cut off our hands, cut off our feet, cut off our eyes, and still be really sinful and still want to be great by some other definition and still want to, every day, deny everyone around us and live for whatever the heck we want to do, even without our eyes, hands, and feet. True? So what really needs to be cut out and replaced? Moving from the physical imagery to the spiritual here, but it's the stuff inside of us, isn't it? It's, it's the wicked and sinful, the way the Bible talks about it, what? Heart. And so if we follow this image that Jesus is painting, what's going to happen if the heart's removed? We die. But then what happens? Given everything else we've just talked about, given the rest of Mark 9, when we die when our sinful heart is removed and we die to ourselves, we're in the J-curve. We find life. We find resurrection. Because guess what Jesus did as a good king in giving up his own life through the greatest death and greatest resurrection? This is the language the Bible uses throughout. He gives us a new what? A new heart. He gives us new life. So what do we do with this? I'm going to read two verses to close. The first is to say that if we say Christ is Lord, Jesus is Lord, what we're saying is I need a new heart. This is echoing what David said in Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. And, and the second verse is out of Ezekiel. I intentionally chose two Old Testament passages for this, but this is God's answer. This is God's promise. I, what does it say? Might, maybe if you do good enough and earn it. No, I will sprinkle clean water on you. I'll purify you. You shall be clean from all of your uncleanliness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And can we say it together? I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you'll be careful to obey my rules. Is that good news? That's the promise in Jesus's death. That's what leads to the hope in Jesus's resurrection and ours. So with that said, I'd love for you to grab a piece of cracker and either dip it into the juice or the wine, because this is what we are declaring every time we take communion. The the pinnacle of greatness by God's definition is seen in the broken body of Jesus. The pinnacle of greatness, of servanthood of living for God and others is seen in his shed blood for your sins and the sins of many. So let's take dip and receive. Father, this is hard for us, as hard if not harder in some ways than it is was for your disciples. But I just want to pray over our church family, that you and you alone would define true power and true greatness, not the world around us and not our own wicked hearts. Jesus, thank you for modeling death to resurrection, humility to exaltation. Jesus, thank you for giving your full self for us and filling us with yourself and your spirit. Thank you that by your power and 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 through your lordship alone we get to (laughs) we get to die with you literally and also every day knowing that something better awaits in this life and next jesus would you would you show us and remind us and help us understand who you are as a good god the one worthy king the one true messiah because this is a message we need over and over and over and over and over again. Help us to see and mean Jesus is Lord. Amen? Is that good news? Uh, I want to spend a little bit of time before the next song just inviting you to sit with the Lord for a sec in this. Um, here's a couple questions. I don't have to be the only questions, but whether you're a, a writer, we don't have paper on the tables today for you, so writer in a journal or on a phone or this kind of stuff, just what, what do you need to do with this? Um, is, there, is there an area that you need to trust that Jesus is Lord and receive his view of greatness in your life? Maybe for the first time, really understanding what it means to say Jesus is Lord or in an area of your life. Similarly, is there a relationship scenario or struggle in which you need to die to yourself and live for God or others? And then what would it look like to live out of the renewed heart from Ezekiel, being led by the Spirit in that area of life? And, and here's why. is because this is a hard message, and especially for hard passages and this kind of stuff, we like to kind of leave them when we leave the room. Um, and so maybe just ask God, hey, am I good? And he might say, yeah, you're great right now. But like by his definition, you're great. Um, And you might say, there's some work we need to do. And so we need to sit with the Lord and let him be your Lord in this moment. And then we'll stand and sing.